From the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardes alum. This is a special Shavuot podcast by Judy Klitzner. If you'll be in Jerusalem during Shavuot, then you're invited to join us. Study all night, Leil Shavuot, at the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem. Please check the website for all the details. This special Shavuot podcast is by Judy Klitzner. Judy Klitzner is a senior faculty member at Pardes. And now, Judy Klitzner. Thank you, Larry. The title that I've given to this pre-Shavuot talk is The Divine Human Encounter at Sinai, a Most Ingenious Paradox. And as we all know, a paradox is a statement that contradicts itself or a situation that seems to defy logic. And one well-known paradox is called the liar paradox. Just to give you a quick example, a Cretan sails to Greece and he says to some Greek men who are standing on the shore, all Cretans are liars. So does this man speak the truth or did he lie? I really don't know the answer to this, but I do know that the poet, grammarian, and critic Philetus of Kos was said to have died of exhaustion attempting to resolve this paradox. So, with all due caution, I would like to approach the notion of paradox, and specifically in preparation for Shavuot, I want to apply the notion of paradox to our understanding of the revelation at Sinai. One more word of introduction, some paradoxical views on paradoxes. There is my title, I'm sure you figured out, is taken from the very well-known Gilbert and Sullivan play Pirates of Penzance, where the song is sung, How Quaint the Ways of Paradox. At Common Sense, she gaily mocks. And the paradox there, of course, is the 21-year-old young man who was born on February 29th, and he's informed that he's actually only five years old. Is he five? Is he 29? There's your paradox. So that's one view of paradox, is that it's quaint and it mocks at common sense. A different view of paradox is by the renowned physicist Niels Bohr, who said, how wonderful that we have met with a paradox. Now we have some hope of making progress. Well, are paradoxes impediments to common sense, or do they invite deeper understanding of complex issues? I'm going to suggest that, as is the case with all good paradoxes, the answer is going to be both. Yes, paradoxes do confound with their illogic, but at the same time, they are necessary in our pursuit of truths, which are often very complex. Oscar Wilde weighed in on paradoxes when he said, the way of paradoxes is the way of truth. To test reality, we must see it on a tightrope. When the verities become acrobats, we can judge them. Our tradition is filled with paradoxes, and today I want to talk about two such acrobatic interactions as they appear in the Revelation narrative. So we, we turn to the first source, which is in the Revelation narrative in the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus of Shemot. And what I would like to present here is two different characterizations, I would argue paradoxical characterizations, of the relationship between God and the people at this grand moment of revelation. In the Hebrew, Atem Re'item, God says, you have seen Asher Asiti LeMitzrayim. You have seen what I did to the, to the Egyptians. Va'esa etchem al kanfei nisharim va'avi etchem elai. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Okay, so the first the first uh, verse that's relevant to this piece of the relationship between God and the people is that 
God turns to the people and says, I have brought you on eagle's wings to me. This is an interesting metaphor. Kanfein Sharim, the wings of eagles, is a metaphor for some kind of grand, miraculous delivery, something that soars high in the heavens. But interestingly, the, the, the metaphor breaks down where God says, but I will bring you not to a safe spot or a nest or something else that is in symbolic terms, but to me, directly to me. That's I would say point number one is this this image that seems to suggest a certain degree of intimacy between God and the people. I take care of you, I protect you, I spread my wings over you, and I bring you not to some metaphorical nest, but actually to me. Another verse that I think points to this intimate relationship, Moses brought out the people to greet God from the camp. This this greeting, is also a term that's often used in describing intimate relationships. It's used when two people, usually people who love each other, meet. And I believe it's for this reason that Rashi brings in a Midrash from the Mechilta that says that the Shekhinah, that God's presence, went out to meet them, to meet the people, like a bridegroom who goes out to meet his bride. Intimacy, likrat. The third piece of, uh, I think, of support for this notion of a of an intimate meeting between God and the people is the recurring verb in this passage of Revelation in Shemot 19. The verb is yarad, yored, yud resh dalid, to go down. That verb appears no fewer than seven times in this text, basically saying that there is no, there's no distance between God and the people. God is coming down to find the people where they are. When I started noticing this, my mind started to wander to some of the reports that my children gave me after they came out of their army service. Um, Several of them were officers in the army, and I remember in particular my daughter telling me about the last day of a grueling training period where she was this very distant, almost frightening soldier, officer in the minds of these young trainees. And the last day what they allow for is something called shvirat distance. You break the distance. Now, lest we get terribly carried away and think that the officer tells all kinds of intimate details about themselves, they actually say things like, my name is, they don't, up until then, she's just hamafakedet, you know, the officer, now she becomes nechama. She might say, I grew up in a kibbutz, I have a dog, I have a sense of humor, I'm however years old. But there's the, the notion of breaking that distance is, I think, very much in evidence here in this story of Revelation, in this version of Revelation, I would say, where God meets the people where they are. The paradoxical side, of course, and I would say a more dominant theme in the chapter is something almost right the opposite, which is in fact distance, boundaries, almost a frightening sense of, of, of keeping the people at a safe distance. In this part of the passage, we have the verb gimel bet lamed, lahagbil, to cordon off. God's space is closely guarded. Um, there's a danger if people get too close. And the word lingoa, to touch, repeats itself over and over again. Don't approach it. Don't touch. If you do, you will be burnt up. You will die from this. And there are these really frightening words like, you'll be stoned, you'll be shot, there's there's fire, there's a furnace. Mot yumat, you will surely die. Vayecherad, there's fear, there's trembling, there's this great degree of just pyrotechnics that, that are designed to make the people feel a certain sense of awe and of actually of fear. 
the verb that recurs there, rather than the seven times of the word yored appearing, going down, we have the opposite. We have the word Allah going up. That verb appears seven times because I believe to, to point out this aspect of the revelation, which is that God and the Torah reside in this heavenly place, we can cautiously move toward it. We can't go up. If, if, if all the people go up, they're going to be burned up and die. So they cautiously send one representative, and that will be Moshe to retrieve this heavenly truth. So which one is it? Is it intimacy or is it a threatening distance? Does God meet us in our own territory or are we very cautiously allowed some entry into God's territory? And I, I was always very taken by a wonderful essay in Eliezer Berkowitz's wonderful book, God, Man, and History, he points out what he refers to as the paradox of the encounter, in which he says that for religion to exist, God must first and foremost be God. God is removed. God is unknowable. God is dangerous and consuming. If people get too close to God, people will die. But at the same time, religion is based on the notion of breed, of covenant. And, and Berkowitz claims in a very bold way that in some sense, God actually needs humanity. You can't have a breed with only one party. You need partnership. And that, and your partner has to be something that is strong and autonomous and active. So again, how do we, how can we have both? How can we have these two paradoxical parts of Revelation? Berkowitz attempts to resolve the paradox with a kind of dance that we do. We come close to God, then before we get consumed, we pull back. But I prefer to, rather than resolving the paradox, I think it's actually more instructive to leave it in place. And note that both aspects of this relationship, even though they're contradictory, are are true. In, in, one, in one way, we're reduced to nothing in the presence of God. But at the same time, we're God's partners. God even needs us to keep religion alive. So for both of these aspects, humility and majesty, empowerment and incapacity, these are all essential parts of this complex and contradictory relationship between human beings and God. With utmost caution, we go up toward God. God gives us a perfect, complete, divine text filled with carefully scripted rules, limits. We approach with a sense of awe, of obligation, of humility. But on the other side, God also comes down to us, meeting us where we are in the spiritual spaces of our own construction. To expand just a little bit on this paradox, let's look at an ambiguous verse in the book of Devarim. In Moshe's review of the Revelation story, he refers to God's revelatory voice in the following way. Moshe says, Kol gadol velo yasaf, which means God appeared with a great voice, which did not Yasaf. And Rashi says this word can mean either it didn't continue, the voice of Sinai did not continue, it was heard once and that was the end of it, or it never ended, meaning it goes on forever. Those are two opposites. And Rashi leaves us with, with the notion that we should, you know, it's one or the other. But famously, in the 17th century, the Shla, the Shnei Luchot Habrit, Rabbi Yeshaya Halevi Horowitz, claims that it's actually not one or the other, but actually both are true. That these words reveal paradoxical truths about revelation. That on the one hand, Lo Yasaf means that God voice, God's voice didn't continue. Revelation was a one-time, top-down historical event in which humanity as we saw earlier, went up to God's space to, re to receive this kind of pristine, God-generated document. The document is sealed. All truth is contained in it. And our task is to try to recover this original divine truth as much as we can. And this view, of course, would, would con conform to, to the words hagbel, nagoa, esh, all the, all the scary words, all the fire words, all the step-back words. Don't encroach on God's space. Keep your distance. 
But, says the, the Shalah, Lo Yasaf also means that the voice of revelation didn't end. And in fact, he says that the voice of revelation never ends. When people are committed throughout the generations, when they're committed, when they're creative, when they're cre- courageous in their learning and in their interpreting of Torah, people, we have the potential to be active participants in continuing the revelation. In what he describes as a, an ongoing dialectic, our contributions help awaken God to keep that revelation going. And that ongoing dialogue between God and the people continues throughout the generations and actually creates more Torah in the world. In this view, every day, when people learn in authentic ways, in rigorous ways, as we do, of course, right here at the Pardes Beit Midrash every day, we have the opportunity to contribute to the revelation of Torah. What a paradox. Our relationship with God and Torah comprises distance and closeness, humility and empowerment, passive reception and active participation. All of this is the stuff of paradox number two. But to get back to Shemot and the 19th chapter, immediately after the eagle speech, we, we encounter yet another paradox. And here, God says the following. And now, if you will faithfully obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people of the world, all the peoples, for all the world is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay. There's a paradox here. The first half of the verse is conditional. In Shamoa, if you will listen to God and keep God's covenant, then you will reach this status of segula, of treasure. You will be treasured if. It seems to be conditional on your fulfilling the task of heeding the, the covenant, keeping the covenant. And I think what, what follows from this view is that you have no inherent superiority. Your actions will determine your relationship with God. And, and there's, a, there's a kind of warning in this. God reminds us, Kili uh, uh, I, I own everything. The world is all mine. We don't have an exclusive. What we do have is is a responsibility to listen to God. And if we do listen to God, then this then we are granted this position. Yet with that, there the word sigula treasure seems to be anything but conditional. The word is a very rare word. It's used eight times in all of the Bible. Three times out of eight, it's used to refer to precious gems that have great inherent worth. And that would seem to suggest that objectively we are more precious than others. We're we're a better gem. So how do we understand this? We we're not special. We are special. And throughout the throughout the centuries, different uh, commentators have viewed this question in very different ways. I would say one extreme on one. Extreme, Stream. We have the, 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 the book of the Kuzari from Rabbi Yehuda Halevi in the 12th century, and he comes down very clearly on the side of, it, of our being an inherently valuable treasure. And in fact, in his view, Sigula refers to a, a kind of genetic distinction of spiritual superiority, where he claims that starting with Adam, every generation has its kind of unworthy shells of people that have to be discarded. And the kernels, the people of true worth, those are left, um, people like Av Abraham, then going down to Yitzchak, Yaakov, and ultimately the 12th 12 tribes. And he says, when you get down to that, everybody becomes the kernel, that kernel of, of greatness. And he says, we're almost like a separate species. We're like, we're almost like angels. That's one extreme. 
On the other side of the spectrum is the Sephorno, who claims that Segula is much more, the notion of being treasured is much more circumscribed, and is, I would say, is more in line with the conditional beginning of the verse. If you heed God, then. He claims that, the, that we have no inherent superiority. All people are equally loved by God. There's only one exceptional quality that grants you Segula status, and that is, says Sephorno, you are appointed as God's messengers to understand and teach Torah to the world. You don't have a higher status. What you do have is a weighty responsibility. And only if you keep God's breed will you be able to have that status. And I think that's supported by the next words in the verse, to be a mamlechet kohanim, to be a kingdom of priests. Obviously, we can't all be priests. We're not descended from the tribe of Aaron. But Sephorno explains that it's this kind of kohen is not referring to a special a group are cast within the Jewish people. It refers to everyone who becomes a kind of servant of God, who's called upon for the solemn task of teaching the world about God. So Sephorno resolves the paradox. He says, you're special, but your specialness is defined only by your undertaking your holy task, which is to service the world. I would argue that this paradox is not actually completely resolved by Sephorno, because in some ways it actually begs the question, okay, well, why, why are we the ones who are chosen for this? This special job. Why there? There seems to still be an element of election in this that seems to suggest that we've got some kind of potential that maybe others don't. Now I don't know the answer to this, but I would say that because of this lingering question, I think we're better served by leaving the paradox in place and understanding the notion of sigula of treasured status as upholding these opposites. That on the one hand, it's about empowerment, it's about feeling our special potential, our special relationship with God of believing that we have an enduring and unbreakable covenant with God, but at the same time feeling that nothing is quite ever in the pocket, that a breach is always conditional, it can be shattered at any moment, that we always have to strive to live up to it or, or else we might lose it. And in fact, there are some really kind of shocking prophetic pieces that the passages that talk about losing our, our position, such as in the book of Hosea, where we're called lo ami, not God's nation. Those are not unthinkable concepts. And I think keeping us on, on that, on, the, on that cusp of being special and not special is, is really the way that we are better served in understanding this. It promotes, I think, a sense of empowerment, but at the same time, keeping us from a sense of, of entitlement. And I think also promoting a sense overall of responsibility. With your indulgence, I'd like to add a few musings of my own about the two paradoxes that we've seen in the Revelation narrative, how these narratives are relevant to the 20th century Jewish world. As to paradox number one, we go up to recover an original divine document, yet God also comes down to us to meet us where we are. Today, looking around on the going upside, of course, it's always important. It's always a struggle. We're always trying to keep up a sense of humility in relation to something that's greater than we are, something that's outside of ourselves, whether we're talking about God, tradition, history, something that is great. This top-down aspect of religion is about commitment. It's about passion. It's about obligation. And I think over the centuries, we have seen that a sense of commitment and obligation have proven themselves to lead to a sense of consistency, of practice, of keeping our tradition 
at the center of our consciousness, something that's bigger than we are. But at the same time, we've got the bottom-up model of revelation, and I would say that today, blessedly, there's a, a new yearning to create personal connections to all of our traditions, to rise to the challenge to keep the voice of Torah going, this lo yasaf, it just keeps going, we keep on creating it. Looking around here in Israel, in the United States, and, and in fact, all throughout the world, I, I think what we're seeing is, is people bringing creativity, there's this, this explosion of creativity, innovative spirit, people actually uh, thinking about their own personal needs and inspirations, creating new avenues for connecting to God and to, and to Torah, these kind of boutique Jewish experiences, people of every stripe looking for authentic connections. There's been this unimagined spectrum of prayer and learning opportunities, and, and, and the binaries are starting blessedly to break down. It's not either or, in or out, dati or chiloni, but endless combinations. Um, we can come up with a wonderful paradoxical institution called a secular yeshiva how wonderful is that? People are engaged as never before in these tailor-made acts of receiving Torah. Um, and I, I would say that in both models, there are varying degrees of awe, varying degrees of creativity, but the result is a revival of Judaism in authentic and meaningful ways. To talk about the second paradox in terms of today's reality, are we exceptional among the nations or are we not? I would say that this question has taken on new meaning in light of, unfortunately, of the egregious attacks, verbal, physical attacks on Jews and in Israel, in re on Israel in recent years, attacks that until recently I think we could not have even imagined to be possible. And I think if we want to effectively defend ourselves, does that mean we, we deny all critique that's aimed at us? at us and make a claim of exceptionalism, uh, kind of along the lines of the Kuzari. Or the other side of it, if we admit our own shortcomings, are we denying our specialness, maybe even to the point of feeding our detractors? Do we internalize this denial so completely that we think of ourselves actually as inferior to others, that we have to find ways to apologize for our own identity, for our right to exist as a religion, as a people, as a state? Again, I argue for maintaining the paradox. I think we can own up to our flaws as a people and as a nation. We can even acknowledge our unworthiness in particular ways to be the partners that God seeks. But at the same time, paradoxically, I believe we should never lose sight of our eternal segula qualities. Without a need for triumphalism or exceptionalism, we can be very proud of our heritage and our identity. There's always more to delve into to dive ever deeper, to celebrate its enduring wisdom, its values. I think we can and should be proud and grateful for the outstanding accomplishments of the Jewish people and the amazing country that we've built. And in short, did God choose us because God saw something special, some kind of special potential in us? Well, I can't be sure, but I'd like to think so. But on the other side, is our special status contingent upon our remaining true to God's expectations of us, to be God's moral and spiritual ambassadors in the world? Again, I believe, yes, absolutely. To conclude with a tribute to the paradox, it's not easy to live with contradictions and tensions. Clarity, consistency are much easier to absorb much easier to transmit. That's why a nuanced approach to religion is, is always very hard to convey. Religion in particular tends to breed certainty, often followed by condescension, rejection of opposing views, often to the detriment of a mature and complex, respectful com com conversation, relationship among people, between people and God. But for re the religion to remain relevant, it has to reflect the tensions and contradictions that are an inherent part of the human condition. In short, the paradoxes. And I want to end by citing Rabbi Soloveitchik, who writes in, in his book, The Halachic Man. He talks about the necessity.
necessity and the desirability of paradox in religion. He says, the ideas of temporality and eternity, love and fear, incredible, overbold daring and an extreme sense of humility, all of these things struggle within the religious consciousness, wrestle and grapple with one another. Religion is not a refuge of grace and mercy for the despondent and desperate, an enchanted stream for crushed spirits, but a raging, clamorous torrent of man's consciousness with all its crises, pangs, and torments. Out of these torments, there emerges a new understanding of the world, a powerful spiritual enthusiasm that shakes the very foundation of man's existence. What he's saying is it's not despite the turmoil in living with contradiction, but often because of it, not by resolving paradoxes, but by embracing them, that our relationship with ourselves and with God, are, these relationships are strengthened and deepened. In conclusion, as we enter the holiday that celebrates our incredible, complex, paradoxical heritage, my wish for us all is that our verities remain forever perched on life's tightrope. Kierkegaard, I think, said it beautifully, the paradox is the source of the thinker's passion, and the thinker without a paradox is like a lover without a feeling, a paltry mediocrity. Wishing all a Chag Matan Torah Sameach, Chag Sameach. Thank you, Judy. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. 